Don't touch that dial. You're tuned in to the Dread Podcast Network. You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts to the renowned horror director, writer, and producer. Now, here's your host, Mick Garris. From Nice Sky Productions World Headquarters overlooking the glamorous San Fernando Valley, I'm Mick Garris, and this is Postmortem. First of all, let me thank all of you who sent such kind wishes as I was hit by COVID last week. It put me out of commission for about a week, and I hate that I had to miss one of the episodes of the podcast for the first time in our seven seasons. But I'm back, and the tank is full, and we've got another great conversation in store. We've talked about this before, but it's time once again to note how important the shared experience is to the horror genre. Most people consume their film entertainment on their TVs, their tablets, or worst of all, on their phones where distractions are plentiful and interrupted viewing is pretty much the norm. But I recently went to a screening that was filled with genre fans and the film, which was filled with favorite terror tropes, beautifully executed, was infectious in sharing its fear and the crowd screamed and jumped and cheered as if it were a sporting event. Fear is best shared and it is contagious. It binds us, the audience, in its thrall, in a cavernous room in the dark together, surrounded by its sound and imagery. That movie was The Boogeyman the latest in a long list of Stephen King adaptations. It was written by Beckon Woods and an uncredited Akilah Cooper, all of whom who've been on the podcast, and Mark Heyman, who has not. The British director, Rob Savage, has created a previous classic in the Monitor movie, Host, and was here with his writing partners, Jed and Gemma, to talk about that in the past. But now... He's on his own in the director's chair on The Boogeyman, a very different kind of chiller, and we're going to talk about his graduation from Festival Darling to helming a major studio-wide release. Rob, welcome back to The Slab. It's so great to see you. You too. What a beautiful intro. Well, it's heartfelt. I mean, you were there in the audience uh, when I saw the show the other night. And it was so much fun. And first of all, welcome to the Stephen King Directors Club. <laughs> Thank you. You were born in 1922, which is the year I made my first Stephen King movie, Sleepwalk. 1922. 1992. Sorry. Oh, that would be amazing. <laughs> that would uh, be yes. Which was that? Which was that in 92 that you made? Sleepwalkers. Wow. Yeah. That was my introduction to the club. So, what was your first exposure to King's work? It was actually his short stories. I can't remember if I read um, uh, uh, Night Shift first or if it was another collection, but I was, you know, I was always interested in in horror, mostly because my parents told me I wasn't allowed to watch anything scary. Any any scary movies, scary books were off limits. So I mean, whatever is verboten is what you have to pursue. Exactly. And I was always a little, you know, I was, I wasn't the biggest reader as a kid. Um, I've got better since. So I started with the shorter stories, which, um, which I remember, you know, I remember getting, uh, getting a kind of dog-eared copy of, of Night Shift and reading it after everyone else had gone to bed and just absolutely terrifying myself and kind of getting that feeling. And I got this with a lot of the movies I was watching. I was probably like 11 or 12 or something when I was, when I was watching 
my way through the video nasties and reading these short stories that I kind of felt like I'd got, I'd, I'd maybe, I was maybe in a little too deep. There's a lot of stuff in Night Shift that felt very adult and a lot of, a lot of kind of ideas and just the kind of, the, the kind of darkness that it's scratching at felt very adult. And I remember reading a few of these stories, Boogeyman included, and feeling like, oh, maybe I've gone too far. Maybe, maybe this is going <laughs> to take up resonance in my brain and not go away for a while. And it didn't. So tell me what that era was like. We didn't have the video nasties era where they were absolutely forbidden and not allowed in video stores and all that. Growing up in Britain under that kind of atmosphere, tell me what that was like for a kid who was drawn to the uh, gruesome side of cinema. I mean, really, it was amazing because it gave you a list. It gave you a list to work your way through. And so... I was raised in a I was raised in a very strict kind of um, uh, vegan hippie household with no sugar, no salt, no TV for a lot of my young life, and wow. certainly no violent movies. And so um, uh, I I had a little I picked up a little TV, a portable TV from <clears throat> from a yard sale, and any time I would see a VHS cover with the eighteen certificate, that kind of bright red <laughs> alluring eighteen certificate that we have in the UK. I would um, I'd use my pocket money to buy it and I'd stash it under the bed or I had a wall cavity with a little pulley system where I kept all my video nasties. <laughs> and, and I literally, along with those video nasties wrapped up in twine, I had this list of all the, um, of all the titles I wanted to see, all the titles that had been banned. So the, the government actually back. released a list of titles of oh, yeah. movies that were not allowed to be viewed in the UK. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and most of those movies, to be honest, most of those movies are pretty terrible with some pretty um, uh, laughable gore effects. Because a lot of them would, you know, a lot of the people who were, who were in charge of banning these movies didn't even bother to see them. So it was this kind of um, these handmade blood effects that wouldn't convince anyone. And it was, a, you know, a lot of them were just these kind of um, boring slapdash uh, cheapo movies that 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 were actually kind of underwhelming. And then every so often you'd be hit with something you'd be hit with something like a Hellraiser, an Evil Dead, and you'd, you, you, certainly for me with 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 Hellraiser, I kind of had this, um, this feeling that there was something else going on, that there was a kind of beauty to the violence and that there were ideas being played with. Um, it, it, it just struck me that it was a real movie as well as being a horror movie, because at first I was just being a gore hound. How old were you when you saw Hellraiser? That was probably 12, 13. It was all around. Holy that shit. Age. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that is an early age to be exposed to something that extreme. Yes. And, and again, it was it, you know, it's 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 Clive Barker, so it's it's royally, beautifully fucked up in so yes. many ways. Um that in and 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 just in chewing on a lot of adult stuff that I think I kind of um I got a sense of but didn't really understand. And that felt really alluring to me as well. Well, Clive and I are working on a couple of projects now, and believe me, he has not pulled back on his his uh, transgressive uh, attitudes in any He's way. Incredible, isn't he? He he. I I, I went to see um, Beyond Fest did a screening of, of of David's Hellraiser movie, and he showed up, and Clive showed up as a as a guest at the end, as a surprise oh. guest, and was just he was so um, he was on fire the whole night. I mean, nobody else got a word in Edgeways, but we we're all just <laughs> kind of awed by him. Oh, he's an amazing guy. Now, 
when you were growing up, when you were 12 and watching video nasties, were you doing it on your own? Did you have family or friends who were uh, joined in the genre, the love of the genre, or was it something that like most of us, certainly me at that age, I was completely on my own. There was nobody else who was interested in taking that trip to the dark side. I had a couple of friends that I would rope along and we'd, we'd stay up all night and watch, watch the evil dead and watch, you know, the exorcist and even try and stomach something like faces of death. And oh. uh, we, it quickly became apparent that those guys were kind of just, you know, they were, they were paying a visit, but they weren't really, um, nearly as kind of into it as, as I was. And, 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 and it was, it was kind of going hand in hand with me discovering filmmaking. Like it was around that time, maybe a little later that I got my first flip cam and I'd started trying to emulate stuff that I was seeing. I'd recreate scenes from Hitchcock movies and, and wrote my friends in to star in them or hold the camera or, or get slathered and catch up blood. And um, and I found my friend group rapidly shrinking because people <laughs> come and make movies with me every Saturday until it was you know until it was really only only me left uh, holding a camera operating <laughs> it on a selfie stick or or a, a system of pulleys. I remember I put the camera on a toy train once to get a cool shot, of, and uh, it was it was basically a one man band wow. um, for those last few years. And um, yeah, I'm the only one that hasn't grown out of it. Well, another amazing thing about your youth is that you made your first feature at 18 and 17. you shot it and you wrote it and you directed it and, and it went on the festival circuit. Tell me about that experience, how, first of all, you put it together and secondly, how you got it to the festivals and then actually playing your film for full size audiences. It was, um, it all came from my ignorance of how the how the industry works and um naivete can be a real key oh it was amazing it was uh, like the i grew up in i grew up in shropshire in the in the countryside you know all my family are farmers and i spent most of my time running around that farm with with my camera and, and the shropshire um, ripper of course famously yeah yeah i mean it's it's beautiful and very cinematic but um i had no real idea of how the industry worked. They certainly didn't know that you were meant to make short films before you went on to do a feature that you were meant to kind of practice on a series of smaller projects or do TV or that. I didn't know the different paths into making feature films. All I knew is that I went to the cinema and I saw a movie that was about 90 minutes. And so when I, when I'd stopped making these little, these little kind of catch up blood skits with my friends and decided that I wanted to try and make a movie, um, we immediately started talking about, a full 90 minute movie and um the the, the it, it, it's this mixture of naivety and just overconfidence which i guess mm -hmm. one one informs the other uh because i told everyone before i even had a script that that in the summer of what is it summer of 2012 i was going to make a feature film and i even i even picked a start date i was going to start um when was it july july 20th summer 2020 to start shooting this movie no script, no camera, no crew, no budget. But I just started telling everyone and kind of started boasting about the movie before I even had a movie to boast about. <laughs> and um, and then the fear set in because I told everyone, so I had to go and do it. The fear of social embarrassment was a, a big factor in making that movie. And so I roped together as many people as I could. Um, I uh, 
I had a, I had a little a little bit of money that I'd been saving up for university for for um for basically my beer fund for for university, <laughs> and I thought I can probably use this in a better way. So that became the budget. We had about three thousand pounds all in, and um, I borrowed a camera from a friend. And the idea was, no matter what we had, even if I was going to shoot it like a dogma film on on a little flip cam, we'd start shooting on this date. The date wasn't going to move. Um, and we got a couple of actors in from some acting schools and shot this movie over a few weeks. And the first day was just the biggest disaster. I didn't know what <laughs> I was doing. I didn't know how to work the camera. I'd invited so many people because I thought I thought we needed all these people. I, I, I remember watching through um, Boogie Nights and writing down all the, all the credits and being like, oh, we're going to need a best boy. We're going to need a cable wrangler and just getting all my friends and giving them arbitrary titles. And then on day two, nobody showed up. Everyone refused my phone calls. Only three people oh showed God. up. And those three people became our crew. And it was great from there on, you know, because we were all learning together. And um, and they shared your passion in cinema. Yeah, they knew, you know, they they really wanted to be there as opposed to having 25 people who were kind of sucking the air out of the room because they didn't really want to be there. We had three people who, and we were all working overtime doing 10 jobs each but we really loved it and we wanted to be there and that was infectious. And so the movie came together and it turned out, turned out better than we, than we could have hoped. It turned out, it's not a great movie, but it's, it was a competent movie and it was a movie, which was amazing. And um, we were very lucky because we, our movie strings, which is what we ended up calling it arrived at that time, just when DSLR technology was coming out, everyone was getting a 5d or a 7d and suddenly you could shoot movies that looked like movies for not very much money. Right, and, you're talking about the cameras themselves, digital cameras, which exactly, were high yeah. definition quality. So yes. you could make an actual movie with the definition of a true film. Yeah, exactly. And that wasn't what ours was shot on, but it kind of became, we kind of became part of that conversation. And suddenly the story of how we made the movie became way more important than the movie itself. People kind of liked the movie, but it was like the, this bunch of teenagers have made a movie that looks like a movie and you can watch it and it's, you know, it's, 85 minutes and it doesn't outstay its welcome. And that was really the motivating factor that got us a lot of press. It got us into film festivals and it ended up, we, we were on the BAFTA shortlist and uh, it was really, um, it was really that kind of awards recognition that led to me getting an agent and be able, being able to move into doing this as a career. So rain dance and the, and the Rome film festival, both were very important to this. It seems. Yes. Yeah. Huge. And then we won a, a British independent film award, which is like the kind of independent, it's like the independent spirit awards over here. It's like a, a kind right. of indie BAFTA. We won the kind of the discovery award for new talent, which, um, which is how I got my agent. And then I was able to move to London and, and, uh, and be broke for the next five years. <laughs> well, in London, you joined forces with Jed Shepard and Gemma Hurley, mm. um, which eventually resulted in, what was really your breakthrough festival film, Host, which although it played on Shudder, it reached a very wide audience because it was a COVID movie made mm -hmm. at the height of COVID. And it was a monitor movie in that everything takes place on a computer monitor mm -hmm. in a Zoom conversation between people. And it's brilliant. And we talked about it on the show before with you and Jed and Gemma. But I want to go back there because you took ingenuity over funding and made something really special that 
really attracted attention. And now you're a feature filmmaker with a 65 minute independent movie that you put together with no money at all, but with really talented friends and your own sense of ingenuity. No, it was huge. And I think, you know, and it's, it's, it was really kind of clarifying that the, 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 the the things that I should be moving towards and the direction I should be taking in my career. You know, before that I'd been doing a lot of TV and I wasn't having the greatest time doing that. I just felt like it wasn't, it kind of resembled the thing I wanted to do as a kid, but it wasn't the thing I wanted to do as a kid. I wanted to create my own, my own stuff. I didn't want to be just a technician for someone else's vision. What and kind of that, TV were you doing? I was doing all sorts. I did a couple of episodes of, there's this show Britannia, which is a big kind of Roman epic show, which was really fun. I got to do a big battle right. sequence with lots of blood. And what else did I do? I did an AMC pilot called Soulmates, which was fun. Um, and it was fine. It was fine. It, and it was, you know, it was good, good money. I wasn't broke anymore, which was really nice. But, um, <laughs> you know, it, it, it's no it's not lost on me that the two times that I've had these kind of big breakthroughs in my career where I've been able to advance um, in a big way. It, it's always come from just uh, taking the resources that are immediately available to me and making something, even though it's scrappy, getting a group of great creative people together and making the movie we can make right now rather than waiting for permission to do the big movie over the hill. Um, Host was made with exactly that same spirit that strings my first movie. Ten years, ten years to the day we started shooting pretty much um, Host after my first my first feature and. Um, you know, I think there's it's the symmetry there is is nice because it was the same, um, it was that same kind of frustration that that uh, that led to both of those movies. I wanted. Well, to what be a great inspiration that is to mm -hmm. to decide. I'm going to just do this on my own the way I want to do it without being talked into doing something everybody else wants me to do. Yeah, and the purity of that vision came through in such a way that it paid off for you and uh, Jed and Gemma in a big way. Yeah. And I think it really, um, you know, when, when you do something independently like that, uh, where every decision falls on your shoulders and it turns out, turns out to reach an audience and speak to people the next time you're in a room, people know that you're the guy that made that, that made that movie that made those decisions and they listen to you, you know, that I think if you work up, um, you know, if I was to work up the rungs of the ladder by doing, you know, 10 more years of TV, I'd maybe get into those same rooms eventually, but I'm not sure my opinion would hold as much stock as having come from something like host where we just did it all ourselves and it ended up connecting in a big way. You're the creator rather than a hired hand. Exactly. So I think is what I was, I think that's, that's really what I was missing from, from all those years in TV. Yeah. So tell me how the experience of writing is for you. I know you've worked with partners and you've worked on your own. Um, is it a struggle for you? Some people, I write fairly facilely. It's, uh, it's relatively born into me. Uh, luckily enough, uh, a lot of people struggle through it and other people it's like breathing. So how is it for you? uh painful i hate it i really really it. Okay. yeah i i um i love um i love doing treatments and outlines and anything that's um anything that's still kind of loose and and vague I, you know as soon as you have to kind of um pin it down into being just one thing on the page i start to struggle which is why you know doing doing host and dash cam the last two movies that i'd done um 
we shot those both off treatment. So we we had about 10 pages of bullet points and it was very um it was very free and the improvisation with the cast and ideas thrown in by our stunt team or our producer would some you know would sometimes dictate what the scene would become. So there was a sense of things still being very much alive. And obviously when you're working on multi-million dollar um studio movie, it, do it doesn't work like that. Um and I I spent uh I spent a long time. I I, I came onto Boogeyman um right after host and I spent all that time uh all that time throughout the process of making dash cam also working on the script with Mark who was who was the writer who's who's kind of largely responsible for the for the shape the movie ended up taking. Um and that's kind of my ideal way of working is to have a writer who is not precious who who knows that I'm going to have a lot of input especially on the kind of the scares and the visual ideas um but also will be able to take that and actualize it and and also just also be able to see what I'm getting at but but oftentimes have a better idea than me the wonderful thing about working with Mark is I'll pitch him something I'll have a fully formed set piece that I'll have scribbled down and storyboarded and I'll excitedly send it to him and he'll he'll write me back and be like yeah it's cool but it doesn't really work for this reason. I don't believe the character would do this. And, you know, and he's right on all of these points, but he'll see kind of what I'm scratching at and he'll say, but how about this? And he'll come up with something that's in that same realm that's that's way better than what I come up with. Or we'll kind of throw it back and forth. He doesn't get affronted by me getting involved in the process. He's he's it's always best idea wins. Well, it's not just the size and the scope of a, of a studio movie from the independent films you've done before. But also the tools of cinema were completely different. The first two with dash cam and with host, mm. they were all on a screen. It was prescribed by the circumstances of the story. You weren't able to use the tools of cinema to build the same kind of atmosphere and tension and, and lenses and color and movement and yeah. location and all that. So tell me, about the difference between making those first two movies and then this full-on, full union crew, locations, visual effects, everything that was at your at your fingertips, but you had to be prepared to know how to use those tools. Yeah, and it, I was terrified. You know, it, it had really, it had been about three years since I'd been on an actual set. I was about to shoot um, a TV show in the UK before the lockdown happened, and then I made up, made, um, hosting Dashcam and ended up dropping off that show. So it'd been a long time. And I was really honestly afraid that I just wouldn't really remember how to do it, that that instinct wouldn't click back in. And um, there's a there's a quote that I always that I always go back to from Christopher Nolan, where he's talking about um, the difference between making following and memento and then his Dark Knight movies. And, and somebody said, oh, was that scary to jump up? And he's like, he, he says, the only difference really is the walk to the set. You walk past hundreds of people and there's there's <laughs> camera trucks and the, the the fire truck. But then once you get into that inner sanctum and it's really just you, a camera, a story, and some actors, you're really, you're really kind of um stretching the same muscles. It's it's it feels familiar no matter what scale you're doing it on. And that that I found thankfully to be true on this one. Um, well, that sounds that's true to a degree, but still, there's so much more to what you're doing mm. just technically. You know, in the original days, in the early days of Hollywood movies, 
the director of photography really directed the shots and chose the shots yeah. and all before Alfred Hitchcock. Mostly they were theater directors who directed the actors in a movie. Mm. But now a director has to be a technician as well and understand all those tools. So I understand what you're saying, but there's so much in Boogeyman, even though it's a, for a studio, it's a relatively low budget movie but it is still a studio budget movie. And there's so yeah. many more moving parts that you have to have confidence in how they work. Yeah, and I think I always feel, I always feel very confident with the technical aspects because I, you know, I came from a world of um, just doing it all myself. You know, when I, the, the first movie that I made, I wrote it, directed it, shot it, edited it, did the sound for the, you know, for the most part. And um, it was, it was kind of learning those skills on the fly that that that's given me a better language to talk to those HODs. You know, I'm able to say um, how I want the shot to look by you know, and I'm able to talk which lens I want to be on and and um, talk about aspects of production design to a level of detail. And it's it was really important for me on this movie that that I demonstrated that I could do that with confidence because I knew that most people would have only seen the found footage movies that I made. And, you know, I, I, one of the things that I put a lot of pride in is the kind of visual language, understanding, understanding the tools of, of cinema and how to use them to elicit a response and how to kind of craft a piece that feels cohesive. Like it's got a language just in the same way you, you talk about host and dash cam as having their own language. I wanted boogeyman to feel as though the way that the camera moved and the way the scenes were blocked, that everything felt of a piece, that that we were um, grounded in some um, some aesthetic rules that the audience would kind of subconsciously recognize. And I think when you can feel that a filmmaker is doing that, there's a kind of, you just let out this sigh, like, oh, okay, the filmmaker's yeah. got me. They understand. I mean, you know, I'm in capable hands here. And I wanted the audience with this movie to just get that feeling of like, you know, we've got you. Well, it's also got a wonderful sense of style that is consistent throughout. It's a very cinematic film, mm. um, and, but it also has to fulfill the needs of a, of a genre audience. There mm. are a lot of jump scares, but they are organic jump scares and they're beautifully executed, but they're used to amplify the atmosphere of the entire story. Because it's based on Stephen King, it has very strong characters and mm -hmm. characterization. So tell me about how that that influence of Stephen King resonated throughout the making of development of and making of the boogeyman. Yeah, I mean it's it was something it was something that every time every time I put too much thought into it, I felt very daunted. The idea of joining the Stephen King Club was was <laughs> a, it's a big responsibility. Um and so so we we kind of we we used the short story as our kind of guiding principle. We wanted to feel like we were kind of scratching at the same themes as as uh, as King was in that short story. And even though we kind of um, we extrapolate out from there and we use uh, we use aspects of the, of the short story and, and take them in our own direction. David Dasmalchian came in with a, a very different take on Lester Billings, but one that one that still kind of speaks true to. The intention of that character and um and then you know without wanting to spoil the short story 
the twist ending of the short story and the way that the monster kind of manifests in the end is something that we didn't want to do wholesale because our movie our movie has a lot of real estate beyond that initial therapy session um but we wanted to we wanted to feel like that that dna was still in our movie so that when we were designing the creature i got all the creature designers to read the short story we were constantly um playing with this this idea of there being um there being something uh underneath the skin of this creature that's unknowable that would finally be revealed towards the end of the movie which obviously plays into the short story in a big way um and then also you know we we were Beckon Beckon Woods described this film as almost being an adaptation of the short story and a sequel to the short story, all mm. one movie, which I really like. Yeah, and that felt like a good way of looking at it. That we were we were kind of building out some classic King characters, but we were also creating our own, and we wanted to feel like they existed in the same universe. That the characters we were creating wholesale still felt like they could come from the pages of Stephen King, and one of the things. One of the things that 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 I think of when I think of Stephen King is his deep humanity. You know, you read his characters in, and even the most villainous, there's a, there's a sense that he understands them on some human level and that there's there's as much of a kind of um, sense of goodness in the world that you can reach towards as there is this 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 pit of darkness that 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 some characters like the, the Billings character in our movie can allow themselves to slip into. And, and we had this um, again, without, without wanting to get too, too spoilery, we, uh, the, we had a draft that we were very happy with, which is the draft that we got greenlit on, but it had, um, it had a lot of the movie's darkness in it, but it didn't have that spark of light in the darkness that I always think about mm. when I think of King's writing. And it was actually, you know, this this speaks to how good the experience was working working with the studio. It was actually one of our execs who really pushed us to look for that kind of glimmer of glimmer of hope. And we we came up with we came up with this kind of counterbalance to the to the to the darkness and the suffering in the movie that I think is really beautiful. It could have been it could have been really cheesy. Some people might find it really cheesy, but it it um it to me felt like exactly the right balance for this to for this to sit snugly in, in the Stephen King canon um, and also just felt like we were doing right by our characters who, who I'd come to love by that point. Yeah. If you don't care about these characters, you're taking a trip that you, that's not going to have an impact on you. The yeah. people you go along with on the ride and the glimmers of hope that are so and humanity and sensitivity are very much a hallmark of everything Stephen King has done none of his bad guys think they're bad guys. Yeah. You know, everybody is motivated by whatever they're motivated by, sometimes for good, sometimes not. But <clears throat> the, the, tell me about the casting process and and uh, how you went about it and who was cast first, because it's a very good cast and they're all really oh, good in the film. They're exceptional. I think, um, who did we who did we cast first? I think we might have cast Chris Messina first, who's an actor I've always wanted to work with. He's, yeah, he's um, really... you know, he had he had a, a tough a tough part to play because it's a character who he's a character who's very non communicative. In fact, that's his that's his central dilemma is that he's a he's a therapist who's very used to talking people down from their own problems, but 
doesn't really want to engage with his own grief. He's just lost his wife and suddenly the burden of um, parenthood falls entirely on his shoulders. And he's somebody who doesn't have the kind of emotional capacity to, to, to talk his kids through their experiences of grief. And it creates this kind of sense of loneliness between them at the beginning of the movie. And it's, it's, it's a part that in the wrong hands could have felt frustrating and unlikable for the audience. But Chris has such a warmth and kind of humanity to him uh, that I knew, I knew that as soon as we cast him, he'd be able to ground it in something that felt um, like I, I knew that he'd be able to help the audience understand that character. Um, in a way that that would that would garner empathy, and so he he came on board. We were looking for a long time for um, the part of Sawyer uh, that Vivian Lyra Blair brilliantly plays, and originally that was going to be cast as a boy. Uh, and we were just seeing all these kids, and I just found them all a bit annoying, to be honest. They, for those, <laughs> there's something about there's something about little boys at that age and maybe it's because I was once a little boy that age that I find it I find that I find them so irritating but um I felt like uh I felt like we needed we needed somebody who was who was at that age that you could believe that they were still checking onto their bed every night for the for the boogeyman but who had a kind of emotional intelligence that I think a lot of the boys didn't have at that age and so I I called the studio and I was like I want to start casting girls as well and I think in the first session we saw Vivian and she was just amazing and so funny and had so many insights into the character. She's, she's such a kind of old soul. She was nine when we shot the movie and wow. is just one of the most talented actors I've ever worked with. Um, so we cast her and, and, you know, and, and, and one of the things, one of the things too, that I'm always looking for in casting is, is actors who are going to bring a real personality to the movie. And she had such a wealth of personality that I knew that the audiences were going to fall in love with her. So she was somebody who existed before the opening credits and after the end credits. Exactly. Yeah. That's a great way of putting it. She's, she's, she's got such kind of um, a sense of bubbly curiosity about her um, that she brings to the screen in every scene that she's in. And then so Sophie, Sophie, to be honest, um, uh, my casting, amazing casting director, Whitney Horton, um, recommended recommended her and i hadn't seen yellow jackets yet i watched the first episode of yellow jackets i thought she was phenomenal um i'd seen her in a little indie movie called prospect with pedro Pas pascal but she was tiny in that that was like five six years ago um and then i jumped on a zoom with her and i was wearing a t-shirt for um for possession the the Andrzej zawowski movie i think oh, I'm yeah. right and the first thing she said is oh i fucking love possession i was like oh <laughs> It's Sam Neill and be, Isabella Johnny, yeah, exactly. It's yeah. going to be. I was like, it's going to be her. And we spent a long time <laughs> just talking about these kind of weird niche horror movies. And she had a big um, uh, woman. Uh, uh, what is it? Woman under the influence. The Casavetti's movie. Oh she yeah, poster yeah. that in the background. And I, you know, I love Casavetti's and, uh, and Gina um, Rollins. Yeah, Gina Rollins. Yeah, and I, 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 um, I just felt like like she's she's got such a she's got such a great presence on screen and also we share a lot of the same references which which the, the more i make movies the more i realize how huge that is having a kind of common vocabulary with every single one of your collaborators but um especially for that part where she was she was going to have to shoulder a lot of these pretty thankless scenes of 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 following noises down the hallway and and screaming uh, you know imaginary monsters that you know tennis balls on set that are one yeah. day 
turned into the creature and she she had such an understanding of how horror scenes are put together about what constitutes a great um horror movie moment that she became you know her performance i think is is absolutely incredible but she was a collaborator on on every level she was the only other person apart from our um you know our, our hod's who was there every single day she's in almost every single shot of the movie and um it was it was great because we both kind of we were both in the trenches together getting steadily more and more exhausted <laughs> and by about a week in we had this kind of we had this kind of language that we developed between each other where we could basically just kind of grunt and wave our hands and totally understand what the other person was saying um i'd be able to run in and just kind of grasp um inarticulately at, at, at something and she'd get it straight away and she the next take she'd absolutely nail it and we were able to um you know we were able to 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 support each other so much um you created a shorthand with one another yeah. exactly as the shoot went on and we got more and more beaten down well one of the impressive things about the movie is there are really preposterous scenes in it yeah. there the idea of there being a boogeyman the monster under the bed all of that but it's not treated like it's preposterous. Mm -hmm. It's accepted as if, yeah, there is a boogeyman that lives under the bed and there is a giant creature and it could happen to anybody. Yeah. And just, just accepting that, you know, Stephen King's stuff is set in a very real and grounded world. That's one step into the supernatural. Yeah. And the way you handled it with just the presumption of there's nothing outrageous about this is really wonderful and it's one of the reasons the movie works so well i mean that was what that was part of my initial pitch to the to the studio is i i you know I, the the reason that i wanted to do to do this is is that i remembered remembered the short story and how it made me feel and i i was at that age i mean maybe i was a bit too old to be thinking there was a monster under my bed but i still did when i read it um that i wanted to put the audience back into that feeling of of no, this could this could plausibly be living in the darkness of your home when you go back after the theater. And I wanted, you know, I remember I remember when the when the script turned up in my inbox and I saw, you know, the boogeyman on the title, and I kind of rolled my eyes like everyone. I was like, oh, <laughs> and they've done 600 boogeyman movies. And and I just thought to make to make this movie, especially with Stephen King's name floating above the title, um, and to treat it deadly serious and 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 approach it as though you're making uh, the kind of definitive take on this this silly monster that we've all kind of grown to you know that we've all grown out of. But if you could make that that character um, scary and real again for an audience, this could become an iconic horror movie. You know, it, it a lot of a lot of horror walks that line between being being silly and being um, profoundly terrifying. And I felt like if we just walked that tightrope with this movie. Um, you know, we'd be able to come up with something really special. And I think as well, it was it was also about kind of lulling the audience in as well, starting starting in a world that felt very grounded. And that's what that's what the character of Lester Billings does so well is that he he spins a story that, that that's born of real tragedy. You know, he's talking about having lost his child to SIDS. And um we wanted all of that to feel grounded and to feel like we were speaking to a real darkness that exists in the world. And then by the you know, by about 20 minutes in, when we get our first first kind of fleeting glimpse of the creature, um, the audience was kind of, we'd laid a groundwork of reality for the audience. And slowly, 
as the movie becomes more preposterous and the monster starts to kind of manifest in in um, a more corporeal form, the audience kind of goes along with it. I mean, I've got and King is a master of this. Look, I got this. I got this on my oh on my yeah. Table. And this Revival. is this is yeah. this is a classic one for like slowly slowly taking you to a place of 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 uh, enormous cosmic horror, but starting in such a kind of character based world. Well, I love that there's no nudging and winking, that it really plays it straight and seriously, and and I think it impacts the fear level in a huge way. Yeah. No, so, I mean, oh, sorry, gone. No, no, just I was going to ask about the development process. I'd heard that Akila Cooper had been involved early on, um, and then uh, Michael's script and Beck and Wood's involvement. At what point did you become involved, and how did the the script metamorphize uh, as you were involved? I came on board. Um, Beck and Woods had written a draft, uh, which I read, and had some great scenes, which still exist in the movie. Um, we took it in a very different direction. It had um, adult characters. The the main character was was Will, the therapist who, who Chris plays, and um, and it felt like the version that I wanted to do of this movie was was uh, something that spoke to childhood fears, and I wanted to reframe the movie to be told from the kids' point of view. Um, I worked with the Kayla a little bit, and we took it off in a direction that didn't ultimately end up working, and it was really one of those. It was it. As soon as Mark came on board, it came together very fast and we got our green light very fast. Um, it was one of those ones where we all agreed the Beckenwoods had hit on something really fantastic. And the genius thing that they had done was to take the short story and make the Lester Billings character, who's the protagonist of that short story, almost like a harbinger of doom in this in this um, feature version. He's almost like a, that scene, the short story becomes the inciting incident, which then sets everything in motion. And that that really blew the whole thing open because when I first was pitched it, I was just like, I, I have no idea how they're going to adapt this, this short story. It's a therapy session. Um, so they hit on that and everyone was really excited by the possibility for this movie. But I wasn't, I, I didn't think the direction Beck and Woods had took it was really, was really what I wanted to do with it. And then as soon as we decided, well, it's not about this character will, and we're going to, we're going we're gonna, to um, move in a different direction. The question was, well, what are we going to do with it? And so we had lots of different ideas flying around. Um, me and Kayla worked on something that didn't end up really becoming anything. And then Mark came on board, and he just he just he 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 kind of like zoned in on the story of these two sisters. And as soon as we had those those two characters who really became real people, as soon as he as soon as he started working on it in his first draft you just you just knew who these these people were and it became a lot easier to see the movie and we found this amazing shorthand and were able to able to get the script where it needed to be for a green light pretty fast over the course of four months or something like that mm. and then we kept on working right up until um right up until we were shooting and, and through shooting we were we were writing and rewriting and um I'd be sharing uh, casting tapes with Mark and he'd be working to the voice of the actors that we cast. And I'd show him location photos and overhead plans. And we'd start to kind of, um, we'd start to shape it into something that was very actionable based on what we were building with our, with our sets and where we were shooting and the cast who were, who were going to be reading it. He was at the table read and then it changed a whole bunch from there. So it was this kind of 
evolving thing that kept evolving even through the shoot. I mean, we, 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 we improvised a lot of, um, a lot of dialogue. We played around with scenes in a way that was kind of reminiscent of, of what I'd done on, on host and dash cam. We kind of got, we, we recorded a version of the kind of the scene as scripted. And then we started to, to build out from there, take after take. Well, it feels very organic in that regard. So we've talked about the characterizations and we talked about plotting and, and all, but what about the mechanical aspects of making a horror movie? There are a couple, one in particular, big jump scare that mm. happens that I don't want to give anything away to those who haven't seen it yet. Um, but I, I'm I'm curious as to the movies you might've looked at or the the things that you drew upon to create those moments and then having made them what it was like when you first saw it with an audience. I mean, I was constantly riffing on other horror movies. I watched everything I could. I watched, you know, I, I, a lot of, a lot of filmmakers who, 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 um, you know, when they do these interviews, they say, Oh, I didn't go back and watch any other Stephen King movies. Cause I didn't want to be influenced. I watched them all. I watched I watched anything I could get my hands on. I watched, um, I watched all of James Wan's movies to to study how he puts his scare scenes together because I think he really is just an exceptional craftsperson when it comes to um, the jump scare. I watched a lot of Hitchcock movies, a lot of, of De Palma and Argento. Um, I would have uh, in my office while we were prepping, I had a TV that would constantly be running reference movies on mute. So every meeting, every meeting we had, we had these movies kind of just... Um, uh, people would be absorbing through osmosis in the background. And, um, you know, I mean, I, I promised at the beginning of the show, I wouldn't talk about it. Cause it's one of the three movies that I always talk about, but the, <laughs> the movie that I made everyone watch was, was the innocence, the Jack Clayton movie. Such um, a beautiful film. Yeah. Which is, yeah, it's probably my favorite movie of all time. And wow. it's, it's the, the thing that I love about that movie is how unsafe it makes people feel the way that it doesn't um, announce it scares uh, with a big booming orchestral score, there's there's that that famous scene where Deborah Deborah Carr is playing hide and seek with the kids, and she's hiding behind the curtain. And suddenly, out of the corner of this beautiful um, widescreen composition, Freddie Francis shot it beautifully. This face just emerges from the shadows, and there's no musical stab. There's nothing to tell you it's coming. You just spot it, and you jump. The moment you know you you it, it's it's. Uh, it's like the the maggot-eaten face emerging out of the boat in in Jaws. The, right. the stab comes just after you've seen it, so it really it really gets you. And I wanted I wanted that feeling with this movie that a scare could come at any moment, even in these daytime scenes uh, that 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 normally would play a straight drama. And 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 you know, usually in a horror movie, you can tell when you you know it's okay to go to the bathroom or check your phone. I wanted this movie to feel unsafe in every single scene. And um, <laughs> the scene that you're talking about was one that I really had to fight for. Nobody wanted that scare in the movie. Really? Yeah. The um, in fact, I had to make. I made a bet with my producer that it would be. I bet him ten bucks it'd be the biggest scare in the movie, and he and he let me keep it in. He let you keep in the biggest scare in biggest the movie. scare in the movie. <laughs> he was like, "Yeah, you can shoot it, but it'll be on the editing floor." I was like, "So we'll tell see. me about that fight. Uh, tell me about input from the studio that may have been contentious." There wasn't. There wasn't anything that we had a huge, uh, a huge battle on. I mean, I think a lot of it. I mean, this is this is always the advice that I give to that I give to to filmmakers who are just um, 
starting to to work in the studio space is like just be just be as upfront as possible. I see a lot of a lot of um, filmmakers who end up in um, really kind of contentious spots with the studio. It's be it's because they're trying to sneak an A twenty four movie in the guise of a studio movie, and I really wanted this to be a big Friday night popcorn horror movie that just happened to be beautifully made and have great performances and have a great script, you know, all of the, none of those things are, are, are at odds with each other. And the studio knows that they don't want to make, they don't want to make bad movies, but they want to make movies that are going to perform to a crowd. And that's, that's, um, that's where the poltergeist reference came from. I mean, I wanted it to have a sense of fun and playfulness in the scares as well. It's, you know, it's a very intense movie, but I wanted it to be surprising and like a roller coaster ride for the audience. And I was, you know, I was kind of very clear about that up front. And I think when the studio could see, you know, at every stage, just when we handed in the script, when I showed them the storyboards, when we started shooting and the rushes came in, they kind of saw that I was just, I was doing exactly what we'd agreed we'd all set out to do, um, that I got mostly left alone. You know, the, the, the studio were there for a few days at the beginning of, of the shoot. And then um, they let me be throughout the process they i mean they were they were really supportive um our exec jr young watched every every day he watched the rushes and would send notes on the rushes but apart from one note which was about a level of sweat on an actor all the notes <laughs> were just about oh this is a great performance i think take three was really wonderful like they were they were um they were really che cheerleading the film and just and could see that we were we were um we were all heading in a common direction whenever it came to something whenever it came to something that we would argue about, it was always, I always found it helpful because it was never a case of where you can't, you can't do this or you've got to cut this. Um, but it was always about having to justify it and um, having to fight for something makes you really consider your, consider your reasoning. Right. And there were some, there were some things that I, you know, that I was initially, um, that I was initially pushing back on really hard. And then I had to consider, I'd consider why, if it was a, if it was about vanity, if it was a scare that I didn't think was maybe as well executed as I would have liked, if it was more a, an issue of personal pride. And there's a couple of moments in the movie that, that I was initially reticent to, to include. They weren't in my director's cut and the studio, um, the studio asked me to, to reconsider putting the, those back in. And it's, it was absolutely the right, the right decision. Um, the way that I tried to get ahead of that, uh, and I'm amazed the studio let me, let me do this is all throughout my eight weeks of director's cut, which is where, you know, the producers and the studio, nobody get contractually, nobody has the right to, to look at the movie until you're ready to present it. Right. Um, I asked them if every week I could bring in two random strangers to watch the movie in whatever state it was in. So from the very first assembly, we had two people sitting there. They signed NDAs and um, and would just be friends of the the interns who worked at, at 20th. And they'd come in and I'd watch the movie with them and I'd watch it from behind my hands because there was so much, you know, there was no VFX, there were temp cards in, there was no music. And even in, even in that state, it was clear what was working, what wasn't working, what was confusing, how they felt about the characters. And so, I was able to, I was able to kind of get out of my own way um, from the very beginning and and make sure that in every decision I was putting the audience at the center at the center of my mind. And that was something 
that was something I really learned from working with Sam Raimi. You know, his his he's so audience led. He loves the test screening process, and he when he's uh, when he's going through a script on something he's producing, and we've got a couple of things we're working on. Every scene, he'll 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 lean over and he'll say, "Rob, what what's the, what do you want? What's the audience experience you want to elicit in this scene? What it, what's the audience going to be feeling here?" And sometimes he'll ask, "You know, is this scene?" for you or is it for the audience is it just showing off or is it something that you want uh it, you know you, are you trying to you're trying to give the audience the best ride possible and it was it was that question that me and the editor Pete Kavostas who's amazing were trying to keep at the forefront of our mind the whole time so it was an avoidance of ego getting in the way of the process yeah which is why I love the the test screening process I mean I mean I love it partly because both of our test screenings went really well. I think I'd probably feel differently if it was yeah. a disaster and the movie got taken out of my hands, but, um, but it was, it was great. And it's just, you know, if you've, if you've shot a, if you've shot a, a great movie, uh, the test screening process can be great course correction. And we kind of, there were a couple of things that we were so blinded to by being so close to it, that the test screening um, made, made clear to us. There were some logic questions. There were, um some character motivation questions that that uh we thought were um we thought were kind of obviously there but but we'd been living with the script for for years and and sitting with our noses up to the screen in the edit room and it's amazing how clear those things become when you uh when you show it to a, a room full of strangers when you went into it was this always going to be a pg-13 or was that ever up for discussion it was an R-rated movie until about three weeks before we started shooting, which was uh, interesting. <laughs> so. And so the studio decided we can make a lot more money. I, I, I'm, I'm not saying that it's a detriment to it because there are some great PG-13 thrillers, horror movies and the like. But I know that there are those horror purists who say, it's not an R rating. This isn't for me. But yeah. So, and that was my initial, that was my initial response. I, I, you know, I threw a bit of a tantrum when I, when I found out and it was, I mean, one, one, I didn't think we'd get away with as much as we get away with in this movie. I'm, I'm honestly shocked that this is a PG 13 with some of the, some of the, um, the kind of violence and weird kind of body horror. Um, it's pretty strong. In yeah. Movie. Yeah. It's, it's probably about as strong as a PG 13 goes, I guess. I guess violence, I guess violence is, is more tolerable than, than sex or swearing. Right. But, um, the the, no, the and one of the things that I was really worried about was that that the um we, we were taking out a lot of swearing and I was worried that the kids wouldn't sound like real kids and the teenage friends wouldn't sound like real teenagers and I forget that if you've got great actors they'll just they'll make they'll make anything anything fly and it didn't it wasn't an issue to to cut down five fucks into one fuck it was fine <laughs> um so I need I need to worry but I was I was um I was more concerned that it would bite us when we got into the edit and that there were moments that, that, um, that would have to be softened and the edges, the edges sanded down. But, um, but that didn't, that didn't happen. There was a, the, the opening scene of the movie. Um, the, the studio initially didn't want us to preview with that opening because they thought there was no point because we wouldn't be able to get a PG 13. And I, I, you know, I, I begged them just, just to play it, just to see how how well it went down, and it absolutely it absolutely killed in the test screening, and um, and thankfully, thankfully got past the MPAA. Good for you. So, 
what is it that appeals to you in the horror genre? Why is that the genre that you have devoted yourself to? Or did it choose you rather than the other way around? I think, I mean, it definitely chose me to, to, to some degree in that I just, I'm, it, it's, it's where I'm most naturally obsessive. I, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm still, you know, God, tw tw 20 years later, like voraciously consuming every horror movie I can get my hands on. It's still, um, the, the highs of a great horror movie, it's still incomparable to any other genre of cinema. Um, and I think, I think, you know, I've always had interests in other, in other genres or, or, or maybe not even in other genres, but just in exploring different modes of filmmaking, thrillers and dramas. And, and I just feel like you can do all of that within horror and the audience goes with you. And that's what I think is so beautiful about the genre. I mean, I, you know, I, uh, I talked about the movie Ordinary People before, which is a movie that I that I love, and I, you know, I'd love to make a movie about about a family working through the grieving process and learning to communicate. Um, and the fact that I got to do that while also, um, you know, playing with with monsters and squibs and all that fun that fun stuff, and the fact that when you when you tell that movie, when you tell that story um, under the banner of a monster movie you can play in 3000 theaters and get billboards up on, on sunset. And it's a movie that people are excited to see versus something that you have to, to beg them to pack into art house cinemas. It's, um, it's, it's, it's amazing. It's amazing. The things that people are, are kind of um, open to under the guise of a horror movie. You know, I, I, I remember, I remember watching um, hereditary, in my local Cineworld cinema, which is like, that's our equivalent of like an AMC uh, or I don't know, like the kind of sticky floor multiplex. I remember watching that opening weekend in in, uh, in London and it was this packed theatre. And I remember looking around during that amazing scene with Tony Collette has her meltdown at the dinner table, which is straight out, you know, that could be from, from some, that could be from, uh, you know, the, an Ingmar Bergman movie dialed up to yeah. 11, no horror in it at all, other than the, the domestic horror that's, that's unfolding. And it was this, this room full of um, people from all walks of life, completely enraptured. And I was like, no other genre can do that. Can lure you in with the promise of decapitations and demons, and then make you sit through something that's profoundly dark and truthful and speaks to things that we don't really in any other genre want to talk about. Uh, it's almost like a safe space to explore all our darkest impulses and thoughts and 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 yet somehow can still be popcorn entertainment it's it's um i just feel like we're getting away with something every time we make a horror movie so i'm i'm going to keep i'm going to keep making movies in this genre as long as i can well please do we love you being here and uh, <laughs> thanks for coming on the slab again and congratulations on the movie and good luck with the opening i'm sure it's going to do great and it's really great to see you again, Ron. You too. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every Wednesday or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. 
Postmortem with Mick Garris is produced by Mick Garris and Joe Russo. Our sound engineer is Christopher Leon Price. Our announcer is Jeff Gelb. Our graphic designer is John Holland. And our theme was composed and performed by Bill Burney with additional music by John Jasensky. If you're enjoying our show, please take a moment to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening to the Dread Podcast Network.